This is VLX number 89, The Carpenter's Son. We are in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris, Fidit, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris, Fidit, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So today is the last section of Matthew 13 where we have a lot of Jesus' teaching. Things ramp up in action and speed against Jesus and John the Baptist in Matthew 14. So I want to give you Father Lapide's single paragraph description of Matthew 14 so you know what to get ready for in the future VLXs. As you know, video Lexio Divina is VLX. And we're going to be coming up on the 90s here. Most of that will be Matthew 14. So this is what Father Lapide tells us to get ready for. First, St. John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. Secondly, Christ hearing this flees Herod and goes to the desert. And there with five loaves and two fish feeds 5,000 men. Third, having dismissed the crowd, he goes up the mountain to pray and soon comes walking upon the sea to his disciples who are tossed by the waves. He calls Peter to come to him and when he, fearing the waves, begins to sink, he lifts him up saying, O thou of little faith, why didst thou doubt? And immediately he calms the wind and the waves. Hence those in the boat exclaim, Indeed, thou art the Son of God. For this reason, the sick come to him from all the surrounding villages, and by touching them, he heals them. And so, notice it gets a lot more fun for the Ignatian prayer people who like to use their imaginations, because we're soon leaving the parables behind for real action scenes in the Gospels. But I worked on a lot of Greek words for today, so I'm looking forward to today. Let's look at the last chapter of these heavy teachings, Matthew 13, or rather the last section of Matthew 13. First verse we have is, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Now, that sentence there also sounds a little bit boring in the English, but the Greek says he departed from there as metarene akathane. Metarene akathane departed from there. There's something beautiful about that in the Greek. And when I was doing my own mental prayer on this, I actually stayed for a little bit of time just right there, picturing myself watching Jesus leave where he'd done all these teachings and then walk to this place where we are going to have VLX today. Where is this next place? The very next line says, it says, coming to his hometown. Okay, it's his hometown. Now, the, the word for Greek right there for hometown is patrida. Patrida in verse 54. As you know, some languages use the word motherland for your hometown, and some use the term fatherland. Can you guess what, what the Greek uses? It was right there. Let me say it again. Patrida. Of course, you're correct if you guessed fatherland. Jesus came to his fatherland. Now, Father Lapide insists this was Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Probably, if you're still listening 
to me by now, you just trust Lapide, so I won't get into why. But this was Nazareth, not Bethlehem. So Jesus enters into Nazareth, the very town where he, the second person of the Trinity, became man, where the eternal word became a zygote, an embryo, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And we're going to see the irony of this fact, that the incarnation took place here, because we're going to see that his extended family, or at least the townsfolk, cannot take his miracles in a few minutes. So where did he go in Nazareth to teach? It tells us right there in verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that's where you need to picture Jesus today, is in Nazareth. That's actually where the Church of the Annunciation is. I've been there. Remember, the Annunciation is the Incarnation. The Annunciation is the Incarnation. When and where God became man. It's probably the most underrated of all Catholic feasts in the calendar and mysteries of the rosary. As you know, it's the first joyful mystery. But this is where Mary was praying, where that church was built, upon this probably tiny little home she had when she was praying when God became a man in her womb. In fact, if you go to that church, either in the little grotto or at the foot of the altar, it says, Et verbum cato factum est hic. And the word became flesh here. It actually has that word hic right there. And we're going to come back to how the most astonishing feat God ever did, becoming a human being, the infinite God becoming a human being, took place in this town, really with not much to write home about even today. I'm showing some current pictures of Nazareth's unassuming facade if you're on the YouTube version. And this ties into the mystery of Christ's miracles today, as well as why it was too much for people who thought they knew him too well as the carpenter's son to be this great miracle worker. Now, keep in mind, where he's teaching today is a synagogue. Remember, synagogue just means gathering in Greek, and it's a place of teaching. It's not a place of sacrifice. The temple was the place for sacrifice. So Jesus in Nazareth, where he was conceived, he's now in the synagogue, he's teaching. So it's not a bloody affair, uh, but it probably still hurts Jesus' heart that his own kinsfolk reject all these graces he's about to pour out on them. St. Matthew then writes, as translated in the ESV, they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Or if you're in the Douay Rhymes Bible, it says, they wondered and said, how came this man by this wisdom and miracles? Those translations are significantly different. So let's look at the Greek to figure out if they were astonished or just wondering. And then if we're talking about miracles or mighty works, feel free to write these Greek words above your words in the Bible. I'm going to try to flash some of these on the screen. The word astonished is actually a passive verb. Now remember, an active verb, that is where the subject is doing the verb, whereas in a passive verb, the subject is receiving the action. Passive verb is what happens to a person, a place, or a thing. So here again, we have the passive verb, ekplisestai, ekplisestai, they were astonished. That comes from the active verb, ekpliso. Ekpliso is first-person plural, meaning I strike, or I cast off a blow, or I drive out, or I panic, or I shock or astonish. And we'll look back at the passive again. Ekplisestai. Ekplisestai is the plural passive today, and it means to be amazed, overwhelmed, or astounded. To be amazed, to be overwhelmed, or to be astounded. Of course, those three definitions in English sound like very different words, but we're going to see why it's perfect that they all kind of dovetail into the same meaning, or rather, why the different definitions all have an important part of what's going on today. Sneak preview, 
as to the answer to that question is because they are astounding at Je- astounded at Jesus' works, but they are scandalized by them at the same time. Why? Because they're overwhelmed that they know him as one of their own. So it's actually the perfect word because it includes both of these definitions as the narrative unfolds. Okay, but what are these works they're offended at and astounded at? Well, it's right there in Matthew 13, 54. Let's look at the Greek on that. It is Sophia. Sophia is wisdom. Obviously, this is the root of the English words like sophistry and sophomoric. Unfortunately, those are two pretty negative words, but Sophia is a very beautiful word in Greek. Probably some of you have daughters named Sophia. The Hagia Sophia was the Vatican of Eastern Christianity until the Muslims took over Constantinople and turned it into a mosque, and later it became a secular museum. I've been there. Here's a picture of it on the screen, but I didn't take that either. And the other thing that Jesus works is dunamis. That is the plural. It means powers there in the plural. It's obviously the root of the English dynamite. So what pours out of Jesus in this synagogue in Nazareth upon his kinsfolk is wisdom and power in the plural, powers. So, both the ESV is correct in calling them mighty works, and the Dewey Rhymes Bible is correct in calling these miracles. So, no need to fight between the ESV and DRB people, both are correct. So, notice the people are jealous, or at least hesitant to believe Jesus, and amazingly, they give their excuse in the very next sentence. They say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's why I called this VLX 89 the carpenter's son. Such humility to be known as that. This God-man who created the entire universe would be suspected to be the son of a carpenter. Of course, we know that Joseph is only his foster father because his father is God the Father and his mother, his real mother, physically, is the Blessed Virgin Mary. But she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, not by Joseph. So such stunning humility. Let's see what the church fathers have to say about St. Joseph here. They say, it seems, therefore, that Christ plied the workman's trade with his father Joseph until he was 30 years of age and when he began to teach and to preach. St. Hilary and St. Ambrose think that Christ was a blacksmith, Hugo a mason or a goldsmith. The general opinion is that Christ was a carpenter, as St. Thomas teaches out of St. John Chrysostom. St. Justin says he used to make plow and yokes for oxen. Okay, so it's funny because one Bible expert I know thinks he figured out from the Greek that St. Joseph was a stone worker. But the funny thing about Lapida here is it shows that every variation to the traditional explanation of the Bible has already been tried. As he just said, an ancient guy named Hugo thought that St. Joseph was a stonemason or a goldsmith. Now, this guy in seminary taught us that same thing. But was he right? No, as I just read, the consensus of the fathers, including St. John Chrysostom, whose main language was Greek, by the way, says that Tectonos is a carpenter of wood. St. Thomas Aquinas, our greatest theologian in the Catholic Church, supports this. And then we just read the very, very early St. Justin says that St. Joseph's work in the carpenter shop was making plows and yokes for oxen. Notice this isn't devotional, even though there's a lot of devotional connections. This isn't devotional. This is taking oral tradition from the closest friends of the apostles. So let's settle it once and for all. Joseph was a carpenter, not a stonecutter. Even my Greek Bible made by the Protestants at Zondervan accurately give the definition I'll put on the screen here. Matthew 13.55 has the word tektonos, defined as carpenter, woodworker, or builder. 
Okay, now let's look at these incredulous people. Who are these people who don't want to believe Jesus? These are the his kinsfolk, at least the people in his town. And they're confused by this much Sophia and Dunamis, this wisdom and this dynamite power flowing from the man that they think is the carpenter's son. Again, of course, we know that Joseph was only the foster father of Jesus as he was conceived. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But the Catholic Church teaches doctrinally the second greatest saint, the saint that is greatest next to anyone except the Blessed Virgin Mary, is Saint Joseph. Okay, but they do mention Mary next in this verse. Uh, The townsfolk of Jesus there in Nazareth say, Is not his mother called Mary? A little bit weird that they say the word called, but it's right there in the Greek. Legatai Mariam, called Mary. Then we have this line. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now here, brothers literally means cousins. And I proved in VLX 81, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. VLX 81 is called Behold His Mother. And then around timestamp 6.30, so minute 6.30 seconds, I explain why these people mentioned also today and also in VLX 81, why these were not the blood brothers of Jesus, but the blood cousins of Jesus. There's several different Marys. So you can go hear that so that you understand that Mary was ever virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus meaning Jesus was her only son. And in the LX81, I prove that not from just the Catholic Magisterium, but primarily from the Bible itself, from the Gospels, we can see that these men mentioned were the cousins born of different Marys. Uh, It's right there in the Bible. So if you doubt this, go listen to VLX81, starting at minute six and a half. Now, Father Lapide himself gets into these men and women today even more detail from both the scriptures and apostolic tradition. So let's hear today who are these cousins of Jesus who they all know from Nazareth. James, this is James the Less, called the son of Alphaeus, an apostle and first bishop of Jerusalem. I have spoken more at length concerning him in the preface to his canonical epistle. He is different and distinct, therefore, from James the Greater, the son of Zebedee and brother of John, whose body is venerated at Compostela, Spain, while that of James the Less is honored in Rome in the Church of the Holy Apostles. Joseph, and this is again talking about Jesus' cousin, not his foster father. The Greek versions have Yoseis, so to the Syriac, hence St. Jerome calls him Joseph. He was one of the 72 disciples of Christ. He was paired with St. Matthias as a possible successor to the apostolate, but then the lot fell to Matthias. The former later became bishop and was numbered among the saints. He is venerated on July 22nd. Simon. Many think from Abdias, Sophrenius, Isidore, and Bede that this was Simon of Cana, the apostle, but it seems more probable that this Simon is the Saint Simeon who succeeded Saint James as Bishop of Jerusalem, for this Simeon was the son of Clophus. Father Lapide continues on page 44, Jude. Jude was a brother of James the Less and the author of a canonical epistle. In the first place, it is plain that James and Joseph were brothers. This appears from Matthew 27.56. And you can find in Matthew 27.56 why these were the cousins, not the blood brothers of Jesus. And then Father Lapide says, But it is clear that Mary, the wife of Alphaeus, is the same as Mary, the wife of Clophus. If we compare John 19.25 with Matthew 27.56 and Mark 15.40. So you might want to write those three things down. John 19.25, Matthew 27.56, and Mark 15.40 to prove from the Bible the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
And then Father Lapide adds this amazing fact. He says, therefore, Mary of Clophis and Mary of Alpheus are one and the same person. For Clophis is Alpheus by another name, according to the Hebrew custom. So Mary of Clophis is Mary of Alpheus. And then last thing here on these names. Furthermore, the same Hegesippus says that Clophis was the brother of Joseph, the spouse of the Blessed Virgin. He is the same Clophis to whom, with his companion, Christ made himself known on the way to Emmaus in the breaking of bread. He was slain by the Jews in that very house of Emmaus on account of his confession of Christ. He died a martyr on the 25th of September, as the Roman martyrology has it. You will ask, Father Lapide says, Why then do Matthew and Mark call this Mary the mother of James and Joseph, but not of Simon and Jude? I reply for the sake of brevity. Okay, let's keep going with Father Lapide. So I'm going to use the Dewey Rhymes Bible on a couple of these verses here. Verse 56, And his sisters, are they not all with us? Again, Father Lapide points out, this is in Nazareth. He says, the sisters of James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude are called by Hippolytus, Esther, and Tamara, but by St. Epiphanius and Theophilact, they are called Mary, Salome, who is the wife of Zebedee, and the mother of the apostles St. John and St. James the Great, who were therefore nephews of St. James the Less, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, through their sister. But he adds, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, are not called brethren of Christ because they were not first cousins of Christ, but children of his cousin Salome. James the Less was the uncle of James the Great. So two amazing things there. When we hear the word brethren in the Greek, that means first cousins, but not second cousins. And secondly, something I had no idea was true, but it obviously is, is James the Less is the uncle of James the Great. Okay, verse 57, Whence therefore hath he all these things, and they were scandalized in his regard? Now, why is that? Why would they see these miracles and be scandalized? We're going to talk about that word a little bit later, but Father Lapide says, Just as men would be offended and indignant now if they saw someone drop his hammer and jump out of a workshop into a professor's chair and play the doctor and would accuse him of the utmost arrogance and folly. Shows they had a sense of humor back then, too. Imagine a guy in a construction site jumping into like a Harvard professor's chair and trying to teach people or something. I'd actually trust the construction worker more than the Harvard professor to teach almost anything nowadays. But anyway, Father Lapide continues, Therefore, this charity and humility of Christ, which ought to have them admire and venerate him, was a stumbling block to them. Then we look at verse 57. But Jesus said to them, A prophet, teacher, preacher is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Father Lapide points out that that word without honor in Greek is atimos. Timos is honor. And there we have the alpha privative again. So that alpha goes in front of it to mean without. So without honor. We also have a triple negative in that sentence. And then in verse 58, we have this interesting word apistion. Pistos means faith, so you can probably guess we have the alpha privative there. St. Jerome in verse 58 translated apistion as incredulitatem in Latin. I'm sure you can guess what that means in the English. But let's go back to that verse, a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. Is this always true? Father Lapide says that this is generally but not universally true for John the Baptist as well as Isaiah, Elias, Eliseus, Daniel, and Hosea were held in great honor by their countrymen, the Jews. But for many prophets, including Jesus, they are not accepted by their own hometown people. Why is this? Father Lapide gives us a couple reasons. He says, 
Now the first reason why a prophet, that is a teacher, is frequently without honor among his own people is the one that St. Jerome gives. It is almost natural for citizens to have an invidious feeling toward their fellow citizens. For they do not consider a man's present works, but call to mind his frail infancy, as though they themselves had not arrived by the same gradations of age at mature years. Number two, because too great familiarity breeds contempt, as St. John Chrysostom says, and St. Cyril says, we have a custom to give little weight to what is common or everyday, even though it be great. Theoflact also says, we are wont to despise those things which are very familiar, always paying greater regard to foreign and unaccustomed things. Alexis says, we love what is foreign and despise what is near. Or in other words, Father Lapide says, we admire exotic things from abroad. We despise familiar things at home. We purchase herbs and flowers transported dearly from India when the very same or better grow in our own woods. Indeed, novelty is charming. I mean, think of if you go into a coffee shop. If you look on the bulletin board, almost all of the things up on meditation is going to be inviting you to Eastern religions. This is one reason I did this VLX series is because, because we Catholics simply have the deepest and most accessible way of meditation. And this last line from Lapide, So the inhabitants of Nazareth, seeing Christ eat, drink, sleep, and work like other men, despised him, especially when they beheld his relations mean and poor. Mean just means rough or basic, not unkind. Mean and poor, especially St. Joseph, whom they thought to be his true father. Nor, indeed, could they understand or believe that he was born of a virgin and had God alone for his father. And one more Greek word on the screen from verse 57 today. It's escandalizonto. Escandalizonto is obviously the root word of the English to scandalize. It means to be led into sin, to take offense, and to be shocked. Notice the big difference on those three. It doesn't only mean to be led into sin. It means to be led into sin is one possible definition, but also to take offense at someone or to be shocked. Notice, again, that scandalized does not always mean it leads you to sin. Otherwise, this would be blasphemous to imply Jesus' miracles led to sin. And we know that the Greek and the Latin and the Dewey rhymes all use the same word scandal there. So we have to understand that in this case, we're talking about them taking offense. As we heard from St. Jerome, it was because essentially his townies were jealous. Or as St. John Chrysostom said, well, I guess we might say in English, familiarity breeds contempt. Now remember earlier that other passive verb from today we saw, which was ekplisestai. That's the plural passive meaning to be amazed, overwhelmed, or astounded. So why is it important that it's both astounded and overwhelmed, that Jesus' kinspeople were both astounded and overwhelmed at what he was doing in the synagogue? Because this shows that they were indeed astounded at Jesus' miracles, but overwhelmed that Jesus was just one of them. Hence, both definitions of that word, ekplisestai. And then what does escandalizonto have to do with this? Does it mean it led him into sin? No, it just means they were offended. So we combine all this and we see that the miracles of Jesus overwhelm them because he's one of their own, and then they get offended because he's one of their own. And so these two words are examples of how studying the Greek clears up not only the grammatical issues, but even the theological issues. You know, Joseph and Mary may have been there in the synagogue or maybe just outside of it for these embarrassing grumblings, complaining about Jesus and his family, how poor, basic they were. 
And so I would suggest for the Ignatian way of prayer, the meditation where you use your imagination, I would suggest just placing yourself with the Holy Family, that's Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, either inside the synagogue or just outside the synagogue, and just picture walking back from that synagogue to dinner at their house this evening in Nazareth, just the four of you. I had a friend mildly give me a corrective to say, you know, the Ignatian mental prayer is not supposed to be just a movie in your mind, but letting God unfold the setting. That was a good corrective. He was actually talking about other people, but I I took it for myself. Um, And you know, picture today, we can still picture things, even if we're not trying to make a movie. Um, Ask God to foment your imagination so you can see the streets of Nazareth 2,000 years ago or today. Picture that perfectly blue sky, that bright sun, the palm trees that are still in Nazareth. Picture yourself walking back from that Nazareth synagogue, maybe around 5 p.m. as the sun is setting over those palm trees and not a cloud in the sky. As you hear all these people kind of doubt or grumble about Jesus. Talk to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I mean, do you realize they were real people? These were real people who really walked the planet that you can talk to in your prayer. They're not imaginary, you know, candy-faced. These are real people. And you can talk maybe about times uh, when you were embarrassed for being a Christian. Or just walk with them and make acts of faith and hope and charity. Let's pray those traditional acts of faith, hope, and charity. The first one for faith, it's perfect for being in Nazareth because Nazareth is where God the Son, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, became a zygote. I'll link these three prayers in my show notes. The act of faith. O my God, I firmly believe that thou art one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I believe that thy divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches, because thou hast revealed them, who canst neither deceive nor be deceived. The Act of Hope O my God, relying on thy almighty power and infinite mercy and promises, I hope to obtain pardon of my sins by the help of thy grace and life everlasting through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer. Act of charity or love. O my God, I love thee above all things with my whole heart and soul because thou art all good and worthy of all love. I love my neighbor as myself for the love of thee. I forgive all who have injured me and ask pardon of all whom I have injured. And please say one of those three for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis. Pachi Sefidi et Spiritus Santi, descende super vos et maniat semper. Amen.